Welcome to this uh, first historical lecture of 2003, an important historical year, 2003, of course. I understand it's some centenary or other, but no doubt somebody will explain it to me one day. Um, tonight, we've got a, a lecture on uh, what I'm sure will be a very interesting subject, one that I have to confess I know very little about, and I think uh, quite a few people would say this. It's, uh, in my mind, a somewhat hazy sort of recollection from before the war when I was pretty small, and um, I've never really become properly knowledgeable about it, and uh, I look forward to uh, uh, repairing that deficiency somewhat tonight. Um, I would remind you that uh, tonight is a special occasion in, in another way, that uh, uh, usually you find that these evenings uh, the chair is taken by uh, an Armstrong. Well, tonight uh, there are two Armstrongs here, my lecturer Brian Armstrong, and indeed, um, I have to say, it doesn't stop at that. There are three Armstrongs, because Brian's father is also sitting in the audience, so welcome, sir. And uh, there you are, gentlemen and ladies, three Armstrongs, a, a, an unusual and possibly unique occasion. So you, you've got the quality tonight. Quantity. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is, I gather, a, a general, I hesitate to say mythology, but the... the general feeling has been that the RAF has not, didn't take a great deal of notice of the Spanish Civil War. It didn't participate, of course, uh, whereas there were participants from Germany, Russia, and Italy in that conflict. Um, but it's with time and the disclosure of information from the intelligence files, um, it's become clear that, in fact, uh, the British armed forces did devote a fair bit of attention to studying what had happened then and trying to draw lessons from it. And this lecture uh, really picks that up and... Um, uh, explains what did happen uh, in the light of research which Brian conducted um, and uh, it gives a picture of the views that were generated by that and of course the lessons that were learned and it also refers to what happened to those lessons um, as often happens, I think lessons are learned but perhaps not implemented as fully as they might have been. And uh, I think that was the case in some aspects anyway regarding the aeronautical side of the Spanish Civil War. But uh, uh, that's for Brian to explain. 
Um, our lecturer was educated in Southport and at Manchester University. Um, we're both from Manchester, incidentally, so there's another interesting thing. Um, he joined the RAF in 79 and flew initially in Victor tankers and later on strike and reconnaissance tornadoes. And he completed a staff tour at number one group headquarters and served as the force air electronic warfare advisor on General de la Billiere's staff during the Gulf War of 1991 which itself must have been a very interesting period, and perhaps one day, Brian, another lecture there. Um, he, he gained an MA in Defence Studies from King's College London, and after a final tour, he, at HQ Strike Command, he left the RAF and joined Westland Helicopters, where he's currently involved in program management and uh, that's largely around the Merlin EH-101 helicopter. So he's seen uh, both uh, the service and the industry uh, firsthand and he's done some very interesting studies and I think we'll have a most fascinating evening. So I invite you, Brian, to take the stand and lecture to us. Thank you very much. So yeah, I'm going to um, actually move around and talk because I'm not very good static, uh, especially in front of a distinguished audience uh, such as this in this splendid auditorium. It's very nice to be here. Um, I have to confess I've already given essentially the same lecture at Western Helicopters in our local branch there, um, where... Um, Again, there was an audience who professed to know anything about nothing about the Spanish Civil War, and then it all came out of the weeds. They were able to identify virtually all the aircraft and people had seen newsreels before the war. So please understand, I'm expecting to learn from you tonight. I'm not, uh, not here to throw doctrine down onto you. I'm expecting for you to come back, and I look forward very much to a, an interesting discussion session. Um, I'll just crack on if, that, uh, if that's the best way of doing it. There will be an apology in the middle of this about technology, but um, I hope you'll, uh, you'll bear with me. I've called this studying Spain. Why study the Spanish Civil War? That's a very good question. Uh, I have one for you, which is why have you come halfway across the south of England tonight to listen to me talk about the Spanish Civil War? Um, so there must be something in it for all of us. Um, in reality, of course, it's a very interesting historical period. It's a period when aeronautically we went from biplane to monoplane. Uh, it was a major conflict. There were 600,000 people killed in the three years of the Spanish Civil War. Um, killed by the latest technology, aeronautical, killed by knives, throwing off cliffs, and in a very partisan conflict as well. So the real uh, span. It was a civil war, but we had quite a lot of involvement elsewhere. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm interested in the Spanish Civil War, and you know, you can put your hand up if you recognize this. Has anybody made one of these? This, yes. Yes. When you're a child, you don't want to see a picture of the finished product, do you? You want on the box top, you want it there. Guns blazing, bombs coming off, that's what you want. 
Uh, I can't remember quite when this came out. I think it was 1971. The uh, Hengel HS1231A1. There it is, Spanish nationalist markings. And at the time, I was an avid model builder. And uh, in fact, my father may not remember, but he suggested to me that maybe I ought to build something thematically rather than try and buy everything that came on the market. Um, not wanting to build a succession of Spitfires or Phantoms, um, I thought maybe I might build a collection of Spanish Civil War aircraft because it bridged this period. Um, unfortunately, there was very few made at the time, and I started out then, and I'm still doing it uh, right now. Um, I've got, um, there were, I think, 323 different types in the Spanish Civil War. I've got about 104. They're all in boxes in the attic. Because um, I have a wife who likes to clean, and I used to move around a lot in the Air Force. So um, now that I've been at Westlands, we're going to get on and do some of them. I'll just explain where I've come from uh, to show you what uh, 18 years in the RAF can do. I mean, there I am with the gun, uh, the last uh, output of RAF Henlow graduation parade. Went from there to um, join the Victor fleet just at the end of the Falklands War. I was on the squadron just as we ended there, so I didn't get to participate, um, although I went straight out afterwards and did a lot of operational flying. Um, could tell you a few things about flying Victors at some future occasion, which is probably interesting. It was very interesting. I enjoyed it very much, but I really wanted to do something different um, at the stage, and so I left there to go to 15 squadron, um, in RF Germany and fly tornadoes in the strike attack role. Height of the Cold War, four squadrons, um, base having exercises every week. The good old days, the world was certain, he said. Um, we did some interesting things. Uh, missile firing with the tornado, nine Lima sidewinders over in, um, in Aberporth. Um, and after that I went to two squadron and did, uh, did reconnaissance. Um, out in the Gulf. On the Gulf War, I was on the ground with General de la Villiers, unfortunately, or fortunately, according to my colleagues. You don't want to have been there, they said. Um, this is a Iraqi SAM-3 site in Basra. Um, in, in the middle here, you've got the radar. You can probably just see the shadow from there. And uh, around it, you've actually got missiles and missile launchers. If we zoom into this, you'd see all this. Um, nicely camouflaged in the desert. Sand berms. That's just dredged out of the desert with bulldozers. Um, unfortunately, the Iraqis grew these trees here um, to give them some shade on the administration buildings, and from 30 miles away, you can see that finger pointing into the middle of the SAM site, saying, we're over here. So uh, you don't need a GPS at that stage of the game. You just go in there and do it. Um, 18 years in the Air Force will take you from this to this. You need a money belt to put the wages in. Um, the pilot's got extra pockets for the flying pay, and uh, you've gone from Slim Jim to, um, well, what can I say? And some of you may recognise that as a TL'd pod, laser targeting guide, and this gentleman is now boss of one of the tornado squadrons just about to be deployed to the, the Gulf. What are we going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about the RAF, the Spanish Civil War, and what I've called the myth of indifference. If you pick up a standard RAF history... Um, has anybody ever seen anything about the Spanish Civil War in it? Usually it says something like, um, the international clouds were on the horizons. Meanwhile, the RAF put turrets on their aircraft um, along those lines. And I don't mind that too much because I think the intelligence files weren't released. But we do have a set of commentators who insist 
that the RAF did things, quote, were blithely ignorant of the lessons of the Spanish Civil War. And as a serving RAF officer at the time, I didn't really appreciate that. Blithely ignorant. Um, hmm. I'll show you a quotation later about the ability of the RAF polo team. Um, people make that kind of comment. Because after all, what we had here was we had the focus on strategic bombing. We all know the story. The RAF is only interested in strategic bombing. Come the beginning of the Second World War, went equipped to do strategic bombings. We're dropping them all over Germany when we weren't doing leaflets. Um, so we're going to look a little bit into policy of that as we go along. But one of the questions you have to ask is, was it worth studying Spain in the first place? I mean, it's a, it's a civil war. Um, it's not in our um, neck of the woods. Um, it's very partisan and fractured. Lots of people. It was a messy coalition war in many respects. Um, so you have to look at it and say, well, where are there really going to be germane lessons? Germane lessons are very RS staff word term. Uh, I'm not going to teach you about the Spanish Civil War um, greatly, but I am going to just run through the, um, the major highlights. And what I'm going to do is try and give you the aeronautical flavor of it, and then we'll look at what the RF made of that. So, so you should be able to come away from here with an idea of what was involved in the Spanish Civil War. Um, these are the subjects, but I'll, I'll take you through bit by bit. It said it went through from 36 to 39, and these are the highlights. Let's have a map. Um, Spain became a republic in 1931. Uh, essentially, there was a coalition left-wing government in 1936, which was quite fractured. And on the 18th of July in 36, there was a military uprising in Spanish Morocco, which of course was down here, and in the Canary Islands, which was under the leadership of General Franco, who was a, um, a war hero from the wars in Morocco in the 20s and simultaneously in 12 cities on mainland Spain. Um, basically, it was the classic military coup. The um, problem with it was that 30,000 soldiers came over from um, Spanish Morocco. We'll see how they got there later. And 15,000 soldiers in this area. This is essentially the uprising area in red. Um, started to converge on Madrid, the capital from the south and the north. Um, and this basically became a civil war. Lots of different elements involved. Communists, atheists, anarchists, quite a disparate coalition, a real ragbag of rebels. But the, these red areas were actually um, where we had real troops, war veterans from the Morocco uh, um, area. By August of that year, it started on July 18th, 19th, the international involvement that happened, Germany was already supplying aircraft and Italy already in August of that year, as quick as that. Um, the soldiers came over the Straits of Gibraltar in Junkers 52s, supplied by Germany in the first major airlift, talk about it in a minute. Um, and by September that year, Soviet, the Soviet Union was supplying the communist sympathizers with something like 90 to 100 aircraft. So almost immediately we had international involvement. Britain didn't become involved and stood to one side, adopted a policy of non-intervention along with 29 other nations. They had a non-intervention committee which was established, which basically said we will not supply arms to the insurgents in Spain. Um, and of course on that committee you had Germany, France and Russia. Uh, so Italy as well, of course. There was an international outcry. outcry. You've probably heard of the international brigades. Eventually, there was 35,000 people volunteered to fight from different countries in Spain as the volunteer and in international brigades. And they came in September, October of that year. 
um, to fight against this insurgency. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about them. General Franco was in um, the Canary Islands, where he was the military governor. He um, left in, a, um, in an aircraft and imported via Germany. Germany supplied 20 Junkers 52s at the end of July, and they managed to lift 13,500 troops in three weeks, uh, around about 120 field pieces um, and about the same machine guns. And these guys were not amateurs. These were the, the um, ethnic soldiers from Morocco, but they were very hard battle-trained troops. So you had a ragtag army in Spain, essentially, and then the, the uprising with the professionals. But this is a very important fact. Um, airlift, immediately, 13,500 troops, battle-hardened, lifted over to La Linea and Algeciras, just over by Gibraltar. Um, it meant that they could get a real foothold and immediately converge on... Um, converge on Madrid. So there were 30,000 people converging on Madrid. Germany also supplied six Heinkel 51s as fighters to escort these and pilots to train Spanish pilots. The Air Force of Spain at the time was a bit of a ragbag. Um, it's a word that does fit the occasion. They had Bregway 19s, um, <sighs> observation bombers, but we're talking 110 miles an hour. Um, very much the end of the First World War vintage. They had, a, they were, sorry, Newport Delage NID 52s, elegant sesquiplane, um, 200 mile an hour just about on a good day, um, two engines, sorry, one engine, twin machine gun, the classic World War I fighters. They were just about to start re-equipping with Spanish Furies, the Fury, uh, Hawker Fury was about to be made under license, and they were also going to get Martin 139W monoplane bombers from the United States. There were about seven squadrons of these, about one squadron of Bregways, one wing of Bregways, but uh, two or three squadrons. Half of the Bregways went over to the Nationalists, that's the Rebels, and uh, the rest, including the uh, Newports, stayed with the, the government forces. The bombers that were supplied, um, the 20 Junkers 52s, rapidly became bombers. Once the airlift was complete, they then started to actually um, become active in attacking the, uh, the other forces and very rapidly they started attacking the existing Spanish fleet. The fleet had mutinied, most of the officers were murdered and had been taken over uh, by the men but those that stayed loyal were bombed quite heavily by Junkers 52s at that stage which was the German standard bomber in 1936. The Heinkel 51, again another 200 mile an hour um, biplane, twin guns, essentially, First World War vintage. Um, the chap in here is Hannes Trauloft, um, who was one of the first pilots to go to Spain, who became a lieutenant general in the uh, German Bundeswaffe uh, Air Force in 1961. So he went uh, quite a long, distinguished flying career. Italy immediately supplied 12 SM-81s, um, Junkers 52 lookalike, it is basically, uh, and Fiat CR-32s, which was, again, a biplane fighter, but one of the best of the period. Uh, very strong, twin 12.7mm guns, quite heavy armament for the period. And they supplied something like 40 of those by August. So almost immediately, you had a real capability in the air. And these bombers started bombing uh, the ships and extracting some heavy casualties. The response from the Soviet Union was immediate, and they provided a shock to the system, let's put it that way. 
They provided um, Polycarpov fighters, the I-15, known as Chato, which is uh, Spanish for snub nose because of the, uh, the flat nature of the cowling here, and the uh, Polycarpov I-16 monoplane fighter, which everybody assumed was a copy of the Boeing 291 pea shooter, P-26 pea shooter in America because it looked so similar, um, they thought. But in fact, it was one of the most technologically advanced fighters of the period. Um, twin guns, but monoplane retracting undercarriage really needed to um, hand cranking. This one's got an open cockpit, some of them didn't have, but you're talking 270, 280 miles an hour, a complete different generation. There was 150 of those by October into Spain, so you then got the makings of a real air war. They provided Polycarpov R5 Rosantes. These are um, classic observation aircraft, but also capable of bombing, um, known as Natasha's, and the Tupolev SB2. SB2 at that stage, again, they thought it was a, a copy of the Martin bomber, but was in fact purely indigenous. Um, twin... Um, Twin, uh, twin engines capable of around about 260 miles an hour, flat out, uh, three-man crew, twin fixed guns, um, basically in a, um, a cupola at the front, uh, a ventral gun, and one at the rear, but just one man to man the rear guns. But one of the fastest aircraft in the, in, in the world, and able to carry something like 500 kilogram effective bomb load, which is quite good for the time. The defence of Spain for the, um, the, the, um, Loyalists was left in the hands of the three Spanish Furies which had been provided as pattern aircraft. Um, so in, up in northern Spain you actually had three unarmed Furies which were uh, providing the defence. Um, these were going to be re-engined with Hispano Suiza engines, classic Fury lines. They had to take Vickers guns out of Martinside buzzards which they'd had at the Naval Academy to arm them. And at the start of the war in the north this was the only opposition that... Um, that basically existed until the Soviet arms came in. The Soviet arms, um, when they came in, were a complete shock. At that stage, they were using the Junkers 52s to bomb Madrid, which was the centre of government and was obviously the seat of loyalist resistance. Um, the Heinkel 51s were escorting them, and they were basically severely mauled by the, um, by the uh, Polycarpovs. The German instructors were so unimpressed with the ability of the Spaniards breaking the aircraft that they then had petitioned Hitler to actually be allowed to fight in combat and so almost immediately had German uh, fighter pilots involved. And so um, the Heinkel 51 became the chief fighter and achieved reasonable results against the I-15 but was basically very badly hammered by the I-16 because of the technological gap. That really was the position at the end of '36. Well, we had the original um, uprising areas here and here, but by the end of 37, basically all this territory was now in the hands of the rebels. Up in the north, where Guernica was, we'll talk about it, um, down in the south of Malaga on the coast, um, and the, um, the loyalists still in the siege of Madrid. They were trying to besiege Madrid, and that lasted right to the end of the war. For two years, it didn't fall, despite air raids, when everybody assumed that it would fall. Um, because of the Douay theory of strategic bombing. You know, everybody would be very fright, uh, frightened. There were some very nasty casualties, but, I mean, the populace actually stood up. 1937, you had basically, they managed to cut off Malaga here, and what they were trying to do was to actually bite off the centre and isolate it from supply via the sea. 
Um, Guadalajara, which I'll talk in a second, was a battle just on the outside of Madrid, where it was the first use of Italian combat troops. And in the north we had Guernica, which you've probably heard of. Around all of this we had a war at sea, um, where in fact you had um, the non-intervention countries provided a military patrol of naval warships to try and stop gun running into Spain. Uh, and they had quite a few nasty incidents, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, Bilbao is up in the north, which was the main seat of resistance, and Madrid. Those were the two keys, and Barcelona down here in the south. And was the Battle of Terror. These names have come up. This is the Battle of Guadalajara, which was in February 1937. Um, Italy, Italy put 40,000 regular combat troops into Spain. And um, during a very wet period of time, they tried to advance along a single road to outflank Madrid and therefore cut off some of the supplies. Um, unfortunately, it was very poor weather and the nationalists, the rebel aircraft, were flying from airfields which were in a bowl. They were trapped by weather and couldn't get airborne, but the actual loyalist aircraft could. As a result, of therefore, of ground attack, they absolutely um, devastated the column of Italian regular troops which were trying to drive up a single road. It was a bit like Operation Market Garden with the relieving troops trying to go a single track road. They suffered in the region of 2,500 casualties, which was a massive um, effort at the time, and that was all inflicted by low-flying machine gun and bomb attack. And then um, uh, the Italians turned into a rout, which didn't do Mussolini's humour any good, um, and it was essentially a loyalist victory. It was quite a surprise. It just showed the key there, air power not being available. The Germans responded by Hitler decided to actually put a full-time professional force, um, which became the Condor Legion, you may have heard of. They put in um, three squadrons of bombers, three squadrons of fighters, three squadrons of recce, and a squadron of seaplanes. And almost immediately they sent out the Heinkel 111, this is the Bravo model, which is very, very new at the time and was their most advanced aircraft. Uh, these aircraft went into action in about March or April of 1937, so they'd actually stepped immediately a technological response to the, um, to the Russian aircraft. They expected these to be able to outrun, and so it proved essentially those aircraft. Their first real use was in the north. This is Guernica, which is 26th of April 1937. They were trying to take Bilbao, and Guernica was on the way. Um, 1,200 people killed. Uh, or seriously wounded, around about 18 other, 1,800 others wounded. Very hard to separate the myth from fact here as to why they bombed Guernica so heavily. There was an armaments factory, there was a strategic bridge. Um, in the German uh, military records, they actually don't even talk about Guernica. They talk about a village which is three miles away, which has got a very similar-sounding name, which I can't differentiate in Spanish. And um, it's believed, or was portrayed by the Germans as a mistake initially. Um, but when the, um, when the morale effect on the world became clear, wherever he was appalled by it, um, it did them no harm for people to fear their air power, and so they allowed the myth, you know, all the actual facts to, to go before them in that respect. But that first real use of air power to devastate a town, I mean, they, they did really um, ruin Guernica in that stage. A symbol of international outcry. New aircraft came in, the Dornier 17 E and F model down here, uh, brought in as a very fast bomber, the flying pencil, but really for long-range photo reconnaissance. 
um, and the Heinkel 70, um, forerunner of, um, of the, the Heinkel 111, very elegant um, three-position aircraft, uh, used essentially for photo reconnaissance, but rapidly replacing the biplanes and taking it up to another level. The, the idea was not necessarily to experiment with the aircraft, but actually to field the capability as quickly as possible um, as a response because the um, Legion Condor were very vociferous about their efforts in the face of uh, Russian aircraft. They even fielded the ME-109. This is the V-4 prototype, 1937, March. It only just actually hit the squadrons. It was the fourth prototype, twin machine guns, 307 mile an hour, the ME-109 that we're all familiar with essentially from the from the Second World War, and they flew these experimentally in combat and rapidly proved to have the edge on the I-16. They only had two of the prototypes at this stage. Um, the symbol on the cockpit, for those of you who are JG-54, Jagdgeschwader 54, later the Grunhertz squadron, that's Hannes Traulof's personal emblem. They also fielded this aircraft. Any takers for what it is? So Heinkel 112, yeah, open open cockpit version, uh, V3 or V4 in the Versux uh, prototype, 20 mil cannon on this. That's 1937, 20 mil cannon motor. They actually flew this and used it against tanks and armoured vehicles. Um, in fact, the fellow pictured on the Heinkel 70 um, explained that he was in fact a very highly qualified Heinkel 112 driver to the airfield and took it illegally and started shooting up tanks and then became a small-time hero. Um, as a result, they then led cross over to the fighter fleet, so, so it worked. But again, they evaluated them, and although the 112 was going to be a faster aircraft than the, than the ME-109, they um, decided to employ the 109 full-time into Spain. Round the coast, you had the, um, the naval uh, activity going on, and you actually had a, the pocket battleships. The Deutschland was there. The Deutschland was bombed in error, apparently, by um, Tupolev SB2s of the Loyalists, and 31 sailors killed and 75 or so injured. Germany were very affronted by it because it was just off the coast stopping people gun-running. I mean, they were having nothing to do with this war. There were German volunteers flying aircraft and helping the Spanish, but had nothing to do with the government. So um, they actually took it in themselves to bombard Amir Almira, causing a lot of civilian casualties and, uh, again, ratcheting up the, uh, the behavior. Um, there were submarines, Italian and German submarines, employed off the coast, and they also sank something like 22 British merchantmen that were supplying Spain with normal legal goods. Uh, the British Shipbuilders Federation had a, quite an outcry uh, about it, and our government was very reluctant to do something about it. Eventually, in September 37, they agreed at a nine-power conference that uh, British and French, and not German and Italy, because they withdrew warships, would patrol the coasts and would actually uh, actively intervene uh, and start hostilities against any pirate submarine or aircraft that was involved in these activities. So... When we say we weren't involved in the Spanish Civil War, they then deployed three squadrons of Stranras, submarine Stranras, to actually hunt for submarines, and they did something like uh, 1,400 hours, I think, uh, of searches. Didn't find any, but they, uh, they thought they did on occasion. Italians introduced one of their best aircraft, the Fiat BR-20. Um, this was the fastest of the participants and able to outrun the, um, the I-16s. Um, again, 
the uh, classic Italian, but not a tri-motor, twin engine here, 12.7mm um, gun in here, similar in the front, 5 to 750 kilogram bomb load. The Russians responded by introducing the uprated I-15, the I-152, still a fixed undercarriage, um, but in some versions capable of carrying uh, light weapons. There's actually a, a clutch here for bombs and also to, uh, to have four machine guns. Very few of them got through. The fighting in 1937 then became a conflict between the ME-109s, which were fielded as the ME-109B model, and there's about 50 of them provided, the Heinkels and the Dorniers on that side. The Junkers 52 still flew, but were very much relegated. And on the Russian side, you had Russian pilots actually flying SB-2s and the Polykarpovs. They then trained 200-plus Spanish pilots, pilots, and they also built Polykarpovs in uh, weapons factories in Spain. So we actually had quite a lot of Russian involvement physically, um, about 909 aircraft by the end of the war, a thousand people on the ground, but also a lot of uh, assistance. Um, 1938, basically the fall of Guernica, they managed to uh, get through to Bilbao um, and invest it, and they also managed to extend close to the coast here, and thereby cutting off this chunk from sort of resupply through France down into uh, Catalonia here. There was a large battle at the Ebro um, over the bridgeheads, um, which was um, down in here, uh, which was aimed to try and halt this advance, um, but it didn't go very well. I'll cover that in a second. And in November that year, all the international volunteers were withdrawn, basically because France and Great Britain argued they shouldn't be there, volunteers should withdraw. The international brigades went home, and the Italians sent a token force back. In the meantime, they left their air force, which was 150 aircraft, 20,000 troops. The Germans had um, something like 4,000 people on the ground and 120 aircraft. So the actual volunteers who were just single men went home, leaving um, the professionals to the job. The Heinkel 59, famous for being shot down in the Battle of Britain, rescuing pilots, um, was used from the Balearic Islands to uh, attack shipping, and extremely successfully it did so. It could carry quite a large bomb load, 750 kilograms. It attacked coastal ports, uh, petrol installations, shipping, sank quite a lot of shipping, and there were only some like 13 aircraft. This one's got a 20 mil cannon, um, again, so we've still got aircraft with two 303s at this stage, and uh, everybody else is getting 20 mil cannon. Um, they were run by a chap called Harlinghausen, who we'll come on to later. Um, but you then had the SM-79 introduced that year, um, Italy's most famous uh, bomber, tri-motor used against the Mediterranean fleet in World War II as a uh, torpedo bomber, extremely fast, almost as fast as the BR-20. They flew from the Balearic Islands out over the British warships protecting the coast and then bombed Barcelona, Malaga, all those places, flew back over the British warships which were anchored in the bay where they were by the airfield and landed, and that was how non-intervention was stopping the war, unfortunately. Got a very nice picture somewhere of them flying over the hood, which is in the uh, actually in the, one of the bays. They bombed Barcelona to see the effects of strategic bombing in the beginning of January and March 1938. Um, the Italian Italians actually decided on a concentrated period of bombing to see, you know, real strategic bombing effects. So in the first raid, they killed 150 people. I think January 29, 38 injured a couple of hundred more, widespread panic. 
international um, condemnation again. And then they tried a 72-hour period in March where they actually inflicted 1,200 dead, I think, 1,400 other casualties. So quite serious. You're only talking aircraft 750-kilogram bomb load, um, but quite like defences, the anti-aircraft um, was not really good enough at this stage. The people who had the best anti-aircraft were the Germans who had the 88mm was introduced in Spain, and of 317 engagements, the, uh, the, the flak battery, 31 were against aircraft and the others were used as an artillery piece against armoured vehicles and trucks, which Britain later saw in the, in the desert. This is the Ebro. The whole battle of the Ebro was to try and halt along the river. It was all over the bridges. Whenever the bridges were knocked down, pontoon bridges were thrown up. Um, and for 116 days, the... Um, the uh, uh, nationalists, the Germans, the Italians attacked these bridges. They used um, Hanker 111s. I've, I've not got permission from Michael Turner to show this picture, but I, I'm a great admirer of his work, and uh, this is from his book on uh, Luftwaffe in pictures. Very nice indeed. They had 30 of these at the stage doing that, and they were flying four sorties a day, medium-level bombing against the bridges, not the world's most effective. They also had Heinkel 45s, uh, at the top, which they lost quite a few of, but were used in direct ground attack roles and also for observation. Um, the Germans call a crash, a California crash, for some obscure reason I don't understand. And the Italians introduced the Breeder BA-65 as a specialist ground attack aircraft, four machine guns, light bomb load, um, but it was uh, proved to be uh, unmaneuverable and underpowered and was used as a dive bomber against the bridges very successfully. Had to dive bomb because it wasn't very good at anything else. Classic Italian uh, fighter pilot gear here. It's not my idea of uh, fashion. The ME-109Bs had taken the fighting in the air, so you then had the Heinkel 51s relegated to ground attack. They were relegated to ground attack because they couldn't do anything else. The Germans didn't invest them in there to investigate ground attack. They couldn't do anything else, so they had to be used for ground attack. Um, and you had one squadron essentially being used, and the rest of the Heinkel 51s were given over to the Spanish. Um, the leaders of that squadron became quite famous people. In fact, Adolf Galland... Uh, you've probably all heard of, flew 285 missions as the leader of the attack squadron, uh, close air support, which is quite a, quite a record, really, if you think about it, and he certainly told everybody about it after the end of the war. Italians provided the Romeo 37 bis, um, which was a um, proved in Abyssinia before the war, and although it doesn't look very good as an observation aircraft, essentially, it was used extensively in ground attack and very successfully. All those types of use of the Ebro for 116 days till eventually the offensive petered out uh, and they were able to bypass the Ebro with 70,000 casualties on the Loyalist side. This aircraft was fielded at the same time, Junkers 87A. Um, if you took the navigator out, you could actually get a decent-sized bomb on. You know, most pilots tell me that's a cost-effective trade, so you can do it. Um, and they used a basically a 550-pound bomb. The A's were underpowered. They only sent three of them, and they weren't introduced as a dive bomber. They were introduced, although they were dive bombers, they actually did horizontal bombing, and only whenever they proved underpowered did they bring them further back, and they ended up doing point attacks, the type of classic Stuka thing that we, we've all come to know and love. Um, the Ebro Offensive, therefore, failed, and they, they, they pushed on through. This is a situation by 1939... 
Barcelona, which was the seats uh, Barcelona, Madrid and Bilbao, was overtaken. Um, the Franco government was recognised by, uh, claimed in February 1939 by um, Franco and recognised by Britain and France. Those were the non-intervention people. Essentially, that meant the end in Spain. Um, everybody's coalition fell apart in Madrid after two years of a siege, and they began killing and uh, each other. Essentially, it was the end of the end in Spain, which came officially in uh, April of that year. And by the first of July, um, the anti-Comintern pact, which was between Germany and Italy, you know, this iron axis of steel against Soviet Russia. The um, Spaniards joined that. Britain was very worried about that because they thought they'd be up against Spain. And then in September that year, Franco proclaimed neutrality. That, gentlemen, is the, is the Spanish Civil War. Um, so uh, just to give you the flavour then, we went from the original biplanes, and at the end, the last combat aircraft introduced into Spain, this one, Battle of Britain vintage, ME109E3. We're talking the end of 1938, you know, two years prior. Twin 20mm cannon, uh, radios, most of the aircraft previously weren't used with radios, FUG-7 shortwave um, radios, HF of course, um, ventilated spinner but no cannon in there, so an actual twin, uh, twin um, 7.7s up there. 50 of those aircraft introduced. By that stage they had total air superiority because nothing could handle this aircraft. And the HE-112 came back in its finalised production version, the B-0 version, 80 kilometres faster, 50 miles an hour faster than the ME-109, um, but was more expensive to build. So uh, the Germans decided that they could win World War II on the 109 rather than have to introduce a second fighter. Um, marvellous aircraft. A squadron of them was deployed on the Spanish side and they achieved one victory before the end of the war. And they also shot down a P-38 in the Mediterranean in the Second World War. The Italians brought in the Fiat G50, which was the first monoplane. Open cockpit um, was reverted to. The initials had a closed cockpit. Um, twin 12.7mm uh, guns, I think. No, 77 at that stage. A closed cockpit. The pilots didn't like it. Get rid of it. So uh, there was one squadron of those brought in at the end to evaluate. And the HE45s were replaced by the HS126, Henschel HS126, standard Lysander equivalent almost for the uh, German forces in 1940. So by that stage, December 38 to uh, March 39, you had the full span of German World War II aircraft employed, so they were able to actually fully evaluate those, although the conditions were not so hard at the time. This is where it came down to. There's a picture by Francis Bergesi. He had ME109E3s against Polycarpov uh, I-15s, although there were four-gun models, so actually had a second gun, didn't have cannon and they'd achieved something like 277 kills uh, by the end of the war and lost 40 aircraft. Um, so you've got twin 20mm twin cannon, um, two 7.7s, reflector gun sights, um, enclosed canopies, uh, inter-aircraft communications. So really, World War II started 1938 in that terms. The Germans came home to a great victory parade um, at Hamburg. They landed and were fated, and the Condor Legion was reviewed by um, Adolf Hitler. They did very well out of it. They, if you went to Spain as a volunteer, you were paid 1,200 Reichsmarks a month extra back pay. You were promoted one rank in Spain, so you paid above your rank, and you got this allowance. 
and, you could, and then when you came back, you got a Spanish campaign medal, you got the breast medal of the War Cross, so you got two or three medals, and you bought a brand new sports car with your 1,200 Reichsmarks per month that you'd got. The Germans put through 19,000 people through Spain. At any one stage, they only had around about 4,000. They basically did six and nine month tours. So a lot of combat experience. They also fielded tanks, although I'm not going to talk about them tonight. So that was the war that was. Back into uh, air intelligence. Um, let me just talk about this then. Back in the UK, air intelligence in 1935 basically had a group captain who was an intelligence and he'd become a deputy to the uh, director of ops and intelligence in war. Organised geographically, 22 officers and staff, but they were undermined. The Treasury, because of the small size of the Air Force, trying to expand for rearmament, didn't want them to expand intelligence. This is a quote from somebody who was actually um, the official history of the intelligence. Intelligence was thought of as a professional backwater, suitable only for officers with a foreign language and those not wanted for command. So you weren't getting a very good quality of officer uh, in there. Nothing's changed, some would say, don't say that. Um, in the time of the Spanish Civil War, they were already arguing with the Foreign Office because the big intelligence drive was how many aircraft did Germany have. It was a numbers game. We want to have rearmament. How many have they got? And so we had this argument continually between the Foreign Office estimates, between the RAF internal estimates, and they just did not trust each other. They used to provide twin sets of information. At every meeting, they actually provide a completely different set so we had a situation where air intelligence were not well placed. They decided in 1936 to, um, to reform intelligence and they formed these committees. Um, basically, the Committee of the Imperial Defences, Industrial Intelligence in Foreign Countries Subcommittee, the FCI, they got to get all targets and they got to get all photographic intelligence, which was a step in the right direction. The Joint Intelligence Subcommittee, which was actually three services sitting together, were formed to assist the joint planners. At this stage, you now begin to get jointery starting out in the British Armed Forces. The joint planning staff were headed by a colonel, group captain, naval captain. It was a very small bunch of people who wrote the intelligence appreciations that went to the highest levels of government. They went to the chief of the air staff, the deputy chief of the air staff. They went to the foreign office, the home office, and to the prime minister. So these very small group of people were actually writing the reports directly and uh, taking them up through the senior management that influenced Britain's appreciation of what they would have to fight if a Second World War started. Um, the jointry should have achieved quite a lot, but they were very suspicious. Everybody was very hostile against each other because of this. The, the Joint Intelligence Committee, a good idea, but the planners did not call for its views unless intelligence was either routine or hard to come by. Nor did the JIC show initiative in volunteering appreciations because service opinion in Whitehall frowned on speculation. In Air Force questions, we didn't want to hear a Navy answer. In Navy questions, we didn't want to hear an Air Force answer. Everybody was working in a compartment. Even worse, internally, the RAF Plans and Ops formed a clandestine intelligence section to give air interpretations on the trend of military and economic potential in foreign countries. Even after 1936, right, they the chiefs of the air staff preferred to rely on these two officers in the Air Force to write their sources of intelligence. 
and they became the filter through which all other intelligence was given. So you actually had two officers, trusted, taking all the intelligence, sifting it, putting essentially an RAF slant on it, and then providing it to the chief of the air staff. So you wonder why he had some of the, the views he did. Joint planning staff, the people here who actually were heads first, there was this chap, Group Captain Harris, who of course went on to much later fame as Butch or Bomber Harris, and uh, his famous efforts in Bomber Command. Um, and Jack Slesser, who went on to, again to be a Marshal of the RAF later in the, later in the war. He was the second one. These are very distinguished and very intellectual capable officers. You shouldn't get the opinion that some people have a Bomber Harris that he wasn't short, he was short of <coughs> intellect. He was in fact a very capable officer, which he showed in, in this job. But these were the people filtering these, uh, these efforts. So, all I can say is by 1936 to 1939, you had an essentially flawed setup in air intelligence. Split service attitudes, the four strategic appreciations every year, 36, 37, 38, 39, saying what a future war would be, um, proved in fact to be far short of the truth, right? They, um, they suggested that Germany, Italy, uh, and indeed Japan later, were actually capable of action that they never proved to be capable of. But this is the intelligence lot. It's very difficult to predict. But one of the reasons for not getting involved in Spain was not to antagonize Italy, because Mussolini was talking about the Mediterranean being his sea, and because they had a strong naval fleet. After then said, what weight of attack can they deliver on London in the first 48 hours? You've probably heard estimates about the number of people who would be killed in the first four hours or so of a gas attack on London. These were, questions were never critically examined. They actually were taken through um, this small bunch of people who gave the answers in line with their previous uh, appreciation of the year. So you had, you had two people who, if they had the wrong opinion, were not being influenced by the wider opinion outside. And you have to ask yourself, did they really want to have a separate opinion coming in from, say, the lessons of Spain. So, in July 1936, we had this chap, Wing Commander Victor Goddard, who went on to be an air marshal um, later in the war. I don't know what he was doing in air intelligence, because he obviously had something about him. Um, he was told to look at Spain in 1936. In October 1936, the war had only been going four months uh, he considered their intelligence had totally dried up and they didn't know what was coming out of Spain. February the following year, he wrote to the Chief of the Air Staff telling him that certain foreign countries are employing the aircraft and war material to try out their fitness for war. It is essential that a thorough investigation is made. Now, this is a wing commander in intelligence. The Admiralty agreed with him. The Air Force didn't. The Admiralty agreed and argued that air warfare should be studied. This is the Admiralty saying, we should study the Spanish Civil War, in fact, we should study air warfare. The Air Force is saying, no, apart from this officer, the Admiralty insisted that they do. Um, they, they believed that the 1914-18 figures that we got were misleading when applied to modern war. And when the RF talked about modern war, they meant a future large clash of massive, massive aircraft. They were talking about World War II scale. That was the perspective. But in Spain, you had warfare which might not be as intense or highly technical as that in a future war between first-class European powers. This is what they did, basically. They then decided to look at Spain through this mirror. 
right? This is not a real war. This is people doing bits of a real war. It's not on the scale of technology that we or somebody else has. Just kind of an interesting opinion when you consider that Germany was employing its latest technology there in the scale that it could. There were three officers looking at the Spanish Civil War, but um, the Air Force view of this request to study Spain was, well, we can't envisage what functions a new subcommittee could usefully perform beyond the study that's always going, already going on. Not a very good opinion. Privately, they wrote to the Chief of the Air Staff and said, we think the Admiralty are looking to support a theory that the effects of bombing operations has been exaggerated, and therefore they'll come to the government and say, don't buy so many bombers, buy more ships, because bombing is not worth as much as we think it is, or as the RAF says it is. So very suspicious. However, in May 37, because of Admiralty pressure, they formed the Air War Spain Subcommittee, which was a joint committee. Admiralty, Home Office, ARP people, Army, and chaired by the Wing Commander. The aim, excellent aim, examine all available information air warfare in Spain, and then in brackets, but as we're not dealing with war between first-class metropolitan powers, should not include questions to which the Spanish Civil War cannot possibly provide the answers. We've decided what the answer is already. Um, some people are a bit concerned this is the same applied to Iraq situation just now. We've decided. Look at it, but don't tell us anything that would really influence us. However, the Wing Commander privately insisted to the members we must draw the conclusions and recommendations Otherwise, the advantage of our expert knowledge would be lost. So they actually set out to study it, but the chiefs weren't really going to look too hard at the information. There's the constitution. It was a joint committee, remarkable for the time, because nobody wanted to work together. Um, not a wing commander effective commander rank, which is quite good enough. Two flight lieutenants. Their aim was to produce reports. They produced ten reports in the end and they wanted to collect every single data item they could about Spain. So they set up what we would call a spreadsheet. It was a card index, of course. 18 main headings from political background to gun, bombs, types, ammunition. 103 separate subheadings, all card indexed. And it went to a massive effort. This card index, of course, was destroyed um, when intelligence weeded the files shortly after the war, which I would dearly love to have seen it. Um, because they physically logged all the information that came in, and it was a relational database, although it was on card indexes, and they used it to provide their reports. They also provided monthly intelligence summaries, which went around all the stations in the Air Force, and they had a section on the Spanish Civil War. So nobody knew about the Spanish Civil War, but every month they actually wrote an intelligence summary of what they believed was happening. Where did they get the information? Mm, when you're not in a war, it's difficult. They got it from diplomats and military attaches. Madrid had been attaché. One air attaché was left. He went to Valencia, which was peripheral. There was an attaché in Paris who was responsible for Spain, a group captain Collier. And then there were the honorary consuls who were basically part-time. And um, what they did was they wrote to all those honorary consuls and harried them for information. They actually poked them and continually begged them to tell them things. And this is what they wrote to them. It's one thing to refrain from intervention but quite another to be ignorant of the developments in the air. We cannot possibly afford to lag behind. And I just ask you to contrast that statement from the wing commander with the attitude, we can't learn anything from this war, which is at the highest level. Lots and lots of visitors went to Spain. MPs, retired officers, people like JFC, Fuller, 
um, went, and they all came back, spoke to the local MP, who then created a fractious debate in Parliament. So the Spanish Civil War got a lot of visibility in newspapers, in newsreels as well. In the media, you have the newsreel images of Madrid and Barcelona being bombed. Quite shocking images um, of dead children and uh, everything else. <sighs> Cynically, the, um, the senior level of the Air Force was not that worried about it because it heightened this knockout blow fear. If the Germans could knock out London, we have to knock out Berlin. We need more aircraft to do the same. Um, and then there were combatants, volunteers who came back. There was a Brian Bridgman uh, book, which you may have seen, called The Flyers. It's about British volunteers in Spain. And there was a chap called Martin Winterbotham uh, who went out to Spain, served with the Nationalists, wrote a 52-page report on... You can pick up that report, and it describes the whole Legion Condor organization, types of aircraft, weapons, everything, and it's 1937. And on the front of it, in the public record office, is written, is this of any use to us? If not, please destroy by the head of intelligence. Um, this is quite a sobering sort of thought. They managed to produce the reports. They were given a year, essentially, to produce reports, and then they put them before the chiefs of staff, who actually convened an extraordinary meeting to, to consider this. So the highest level of leadership actually said, all right, we'll sit down and read them. So despite their prejudice, if you like, they said they would. These are the reports they looked at. Uh, AAA defense, air attack on fuel storage, and low-flying attack on ground forces. And this is uh, Cyril Newell, um, who was the chief of the air staff at the time. And this meeting was on the 19th of October 1937. It's an important date. What did they learn in those reports? They said, badly trained and poorly armed anti-aircraft fire achieved important results, forcing bombers to fly, sorry, wrong word there, to fly high with a lack of accuracy. The German 88mm guns, excellent utility. Excellent utility. This is a lesson that was very badly learned in 1941 in the desert. It's 317 engagements, only 31 against aircraft. It was used in the ground roll throughout, and we knew that. We knew that in 1937. Air attack on fuel... Sounds easy to say, but you can set alight fuel installations easily. There was a big argument going at the time about how to protect fuel. And low-flying attack, so the ground attack scenario. The report stressed the effect on troops. If they didn't have AAA defence or aircraft over them, they were completely demoralised. The moral and material effects were considerable. Low-flying attack by machine gun and bombs was undoubtedly more effective than high-level bombing. You can imagine that that wasn't the kind of message that which the RF particularly wanted to hear at that stage. The Chief of the Naval Staff said of the reports, it would be helpful to study these even though no useful lessons of importance can be learned from them. The CIGS said, this AAA report is drawn upon meagre evidence. We should exercise great care in its conclusions. He was busy fighting the Secretary of State for war because he wanted resources for the field force which would deploy to France, and he actually wanted more guns himself. He didn't want the Air Force to be given lots and lots of AAA to guard their airfields back in England. The Secretary of State for war noted the use of aircraft in protecting ground forces. I would draw your attention to this statement. Well, you often hear people, sometimes in RAF uh, um, books, saying... The CAS said of the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Cyril Newell, said of the Spanish Civil War, it was a gross misuse of resources. Using aircraft for ground attack is a gross misuse of resources. It's widely 
widely quoted. That is not what he said. If you actually get the records of the meeting now, he said, this was a gross misuse of resources, and what he was referring to was the fact that they had to provide standing combat air patrols over the front line to defend the front line against incoming ground attack aircraft. I mean, so the British policy was to have aircraft on the ground, an early warning system, and launch to intercept raids. So he was a perfectly logical statement, but everybody says he was talking about ground attack. He was not. He was talking about standing armed patrols. He wanted to keep aircraft on the ground, launch to defend the people, but launch them to intercept. He hoped the Italians were apparently devoting 50% of aircraft to ground attack, and he hoped this was the case, because all the better for us, he said. And he wasn't about to follow them in that principle. Aerodrome and air defence was going to be looked at, so pass it on to somebody else and we'll have a look. Why did they take this attitude? You know, I'm, I can see that we have the philosophy of strategic bombing. Why? One of the reasons was because the chiefs of the air staff and the senior management thought they knew better than intelligence reports. Because they had those two officers, group captain level, filtering all those reports, they believed in them. They thought they were aspiring junior officers. But this was going on. In January 1937, October 1937, the highest levels of the Air Force and the German Air Force had an exchange program. In January 1937, the Deputy Chief of the Air Staff went over to Berlin with a few officers, was shown all the factories, he was shown the ME-109s. It was all, come and see our wonderful Air Force. And it was a very hail fellow, well met. We're all aviators together. I'll try and prove that to you in a second. In October 1937, 19th of October 37, looking at the reports, October 1937, 21st of October 1937, we have this. This is the, um, this is Ernst Dudet, those of you of First World War knowledge, 62 kills, First World War, he was, um, in charge of German technical development. This is Field Marshal Milch, later Milch, who was, a uh, head of procurement. This is Stumpf. Um, and this is uh, Lord Swinton, I think, um, who was the Air Minister at Astral House. And you can see, just have a look at the body language here. This is all, we're all professional aviators together. Let's have a meeting and show each other our latest abilities. They went to Mildon Hall and Hornchurch to actually view the latest RAF bombers. I draw attention to the latest RAF bombers. Right? Um, I think it's a Harrow, is it a Harrow? Yeah. And a Hayford in the back. This is October 1937. The Blenheim was in, um, the battle was in, and we hadn't got any of the uh, the real twin-engine bombers at that stage uh, to come in. So here we here we have Milch and uh, Udet, etc., um, look, looking and inspecting them. It's a problem, isn't it? What what in reality was happening? Therefore, you had a very intimate relationship. They were actually saying to, and it's reported in the files, to um, General Veniger, who was the, uh, the air attaché in London who was with them, we hear you chaps are doing ground attack in Spain. Why are you doing that when you've got a strategic air force with all these wonderful aircraft? General Veniger was saying, we're only doing that to humour the army. The army wants us to have more reconnaissance aircraft. We don't think it's a good use of resources. And the air force went, I agree with you. That was actually reported in those statements. They then came over here to Mildenhall, reviewed these, and in these meetings here, 
you have this whole exercise going on at the same time the chiefs of staff were actually looking at these reports. They believed they knew better. They spoke to the German officers. They asked them what was actually happening in Spain. And they said, we think Spanish civil war fighting has developed not in the way we foresaw. It's not a strategic war at all. It's a sort of tactical war. And really, we're having to do it, but it's not what our air force is about. So the Germans either meant it, because it's not clear to see what they did, or they said what the UK wanted to hear in this respect. But unfortunately, that attitude directly coloured the reports. Those reports came out saying, they're doing this because it's effective, and on the other hand, you had people actually physically standing there telling you, no, that's not the case. And because of this close relationship, a very close relationship indeed, they were not given credence. You may have all read the story of the reflector gun site at um, Hornchurch. Hornchurch had uh, gladiators, and uh, I think it's in Jewel of Eagles, Peter Townsend. Um, Bob Stanford took, was standing by the gladiator, and uh, along came the German general and asked him if he could see the, the gun site, and he'd been briefed not to show him it. So he said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't show you that. Um, and the air vice marshal stepped forward and explained exactly how it worked, even though it was on the secret list. You know, and everybody, I mean, I read that in Julie Beagles and thought, amazing. Well, the gun sites were actually um, a design developed in Berlin. The Germans had been using reflector gun sites in March 1937 in Spain. They had reflector gun sites. They were used to them. He, he actually said, oh, you've got a reflector gun sight. It was the same basic design. What was secret was the knurled ring by which you set the wingspan of the aircraft. Right? And that was what Took was actually, again, trying to, trying to protect. But uh, Mil Shenouda, who were looking at that at the time, they didn't actually realise that that was, uh, that was brought about. But it was not an Air Vice Marshal. It was Wing Commander Goddard from the Intelligence Committee who actually stepped forward and explained the principles of uh, reflector gun sights. So you have to say, I'm not quite sure what was going on. By April 1938, a year away from the end of the Spanish Civil War, they expanded this committee to include China, because China was engaged in a war with Japan, or Japan having invaded Manchuria in about 1935. Goddard was replaced, he got promoted, and Lord Swinton wrote to the committee in July 38 and said, I'm concerned. The impression has been given quite wrongly in Spain that bombing is an indiscriminate weapon which could cause material damage, but is not directed with accuracy and effort. We want to give a true and unbiased account of the lessons of Spain for a responsible people. And what he got back from the Air Force was a, uh, a report saying, we need a strategic bombing force. Yes, Spain, they're just chucking them all over the place. We can deliver accurately. We can do a proper job with it. Uh, in line with the philosophy. And that, again, is in the minutes in there. He was concerned because it, they seemed to be chucking these bombs around. And were we going to do that in the war? Hmm, interesting. In November 1938, they revised the war plans and the shortage of manpower. So the committee began to break up. Um, ARP, which could have learned a lot from this because, of course, there'd been a lot of bombing, um, became too difficult, didn't have enough people, so they abandoned the air defence report. It was actually about how to defend civil air defence in the community. It could have been a very v uh, valuable uh, document. But chiefs of staff were too busy to take the second set of reports, which now went up to the October 37. They went to the end of 37, and they had the whole nine yards in it. They had uh, very accurate reports, the German technology, what they were using, how many aircraft were involved, 
very detailed in there. The first reports, you could have said, were sketchy, perhaps, in areas. Five reports are submitted. Um, I'll go th just go briefly through them to show you. Sea communications. This was the, uh, the Heinkel 59s. Major effects were achieved, but from only small forces. The equipment was not on a standard expected from first-class powers. I told you, they bombed the fuel tanks, they bombed uh, Barcelona, they sunk 22 British ships, they only had 12 aircraft. Right? They only had 12 aircraft. They had a very effective um, use out of these aircraft. Air cooperation with land forces, it was an expediency forced on the air due to the lack of suitable targets, an exceptional use of aircraft. So we've been looking at this for 18 months, we've seen what ground attack can do, and these are the words that are used Following the first meeting of the Chiefs of Staff, these are the words that are now in the second set of reports. The wing commander has gone, a different wing commander in the chair, and what you've got is the RAF orthodoxy coming back in. The German and Air Force and Italian tactics are at odds with their professed doctrine, which is exactly what I said. We're being told things that don't seem to be true. Now you're telling me this. General Veniger, General Milch said this. The Air Corporation Land Forces report, the provision of aircraft for this purpose is undoubtedly receiving serious consideration by foreign powers. Certainly, they developed ground attack aircraft. The Luftwaffe was introducing a particular aircraft for close support and a special defensive organisation. So, it's an expediency, it's forced upon Germany. They're de developing an organisation to defend against ground attack aircraft. They're developing a new aircraft to actually do it in the service doesn't sit very well. If the full effectiveness of aircraft in close support is to be obtained, there seems to be a prima facie case for special design. It's actually in the report saying, if we're going to do close support, we need a specialised British design. And that was one of the conclusions, again, buried in there. So even though it's poo-pooed, essentially, at the end of it said, we need to have a special ground attack aircraft. And, of course, it was music to the army's ears. The army wanted to hear this because they were very worried about Spain. That's one of the reasons they sat on the committee. The active and passive air defence. The special nature of Spain encouraged an exceptional need for ground attack and created a need for fighter escorts. We're going to talk about escorts in a second. No need for escorts normally. This is an exceptional use. Spain's a short-range war. Italy and Germany seem to be devoting time to long-range fighters and ground attack aircraft were even escorted. It was an expediency, and yet Germany's building long-range fighters here, right? and Spain was a short-range war. So how have they come about that lesson? The conclusion cannot be avoided. The threat of air attack at great distances beyond the front line makes necessary an ample provision for active and passive defence of armies in the field. That, to me, is a clear statement saying you're going to get attacked by low-flying aircraft, you need to defend against it clearly state in these reports what happened was they went to the deputy chiefs of staff and they closed the reports without modifying the joint intelligence committee's view which is the two officers providing the strategic orthodoxy the air forces in Spain have been inadequate to exploit the situation where opportunity presented itself to vindicate the power of the bomber it had been lost by bad management so you didn't do a good job bombing towns because you didn't do it properly the main lessons to be learned were negative. In other words, they looked at the reports and said, let's not do that. There are negative lines of policy. We should not adopt them. It's bad news. 
Basically, I've put it here, they were unable to reconcile what they saw as a small civil war with a mix of modern technology and small forces with a concept of a future massive clash between highly trained air forces. They knew at the Battle of Ebro, 500 aircraft had been involved on one side alone, 150 defenders. There were something like 300 sorties in one day at the height of that battle, actually going only over the front in a front of about five miles, and yet they saw it as a small war. Um, Air Marshal Goddard later wrote a book in which he said, the British have a dangerous tendency to confuse beliefs with facts, and where facts conflict with traditional thinking to reject them. And this is exactly the case that we're actually seeing. And he, of course, is making a backward comment about the views of the Deputy Chiefs of Staff. What you have to remember, of course, is this was 1939. We're almost up against the elephant of the Second World War. So the deputies probably felt they didn't have much room to manoeuvre or change the direction of the Air Force at that stage, even if they wanted to. We didn't learn from it. What did anybody else learn from it? Let's see what they learned from it. France. There were no direct combat experience, no, no formal troops. They supplied old aircraft, POTUS 540 here, um, Newport Delage aircraft, some old Loire and Damotown 372 aircraft. Faulty doctrine was used. In other words, they fought in Spain in a different way to which we would do, so we can't make it the same case. The weapons were poor. You may ask yourself whether... Um, the ME-109E3 and the Heinkel HG-11E, which they got to, were poor weapons compared to the French standard of aircraft industry in 1937-38. And the aircraft industry in France was badly placed to take advantage, which perhaps is a core truth. Um, even if they wanted to learn the lessons, they were struggling just to get into the, uh, the aeronautical forefront. The United States... The United States shared the strategic vision of Great Britain, strategic bombing, the main thing. They're developing the flying fortress, starting to go along at this stage. Spain was irrelevant to modern warfare. We shouldn't draw lessons from it. It's a pretty blunt statement. Um, Army Attack Aviation, AAA, stated that attack aircraft should be designed for a proper purpose rather than close support of ground units. don't know what you think an attack aviation aircraft should be doing. It's not attacking ground units. By 1941, no proper attack design existed. Based upon observations of Spanish Civil War where avi attack aviation had been unsuccessful, so they couldn't decide how to build an attack aircraft, looked at Spanish Civil War and said, well, what do we want to build? What will we use the aircraft for? They couldn't come to a view. Russia had direct combat experience. Most modern types supplied. A thousand personnel, 909 aircraft. They redirected their strategic bomb effort. They actually got rid of their heavy bomber fleet. They had the only heavy bomber fleet in Europe at that stage, I think, were Tupov TV-3s, and they disbanded them. They decided that all forces would have to be directed against the front until enemy military resistance is broken. So they looked at the Spanish Civil War and said, we need to do this. We actually need to direct everything against the front, um, you know, so we can support the ground troops, support the tank. I wonder what you think of, you know, uh, Russian operations in 1943-44 with the Sturmovik and, and tanks. I mean, everything went into that front. You know, they learned that lesson, but yet they disbanded the heavy bomber fleets. Hmm. Italy. The chief of staff was asked in an interview, what did the Air Force learn in Spain? Nothing, he said. 
Interesting. Um, they did test the Douay bombing theory, strategic bombing, in Barcelona and Madrid. And they also tested his alternate numbers. Um, Valle was vying against General Makotsi, who will be chief of the air staff. One said strategic bombing, one said ground attack. But they did ground support operations. They did both. They tried this, uh, they tried this in Barcelona. They tried the ground attack throughout. Specialized ground attack aircraft, the BA-65, failed. Strategic bombers were fast enough to avoid most fighters. They were in reality. And the, the, the Spanish War veterans sat, came back, semi-heroic status, went into positions of power, and stifled any further change until 1941, and they got a very bad shock in the desert. The CR-42, to, to replace the CR-32, was developed, um, but they also had the monoplanes. They actually intended to run them parallel. Fighter tactics individualized. This is a standard Italian formation um, from, uh, from that period. Um, they're actually flying in threes, right? actually flying in echelon threes in here, right? which was basically out of date. The SM-79 stayed in essentially the same form right through to 1943 uh, when the armistice was. And that, so again, another airfix box. I make no apologies because that's a really good picture. You want to build that. Germany. What did Germany learn? Commentators say... After Spain, uh, the German Air Force became the handmaiden of the army. I disagree. Um, they actually had a balanced doctrine. They, they had strategic bombing, they had tactical bombing, they had um, fighter escort, they had fighter defence. They basically had a doctrine which would allow you to do any of those, and so they used the bits that fitted in Spain. Um, the ground attack techniques were boosted because they learned how to identify troops, how to integrate with troops, how to actually attack with the Heinkel 51s and then the HS-123s, which came in later. They decided that escorts were needed for bombers. They had the fast bomber policy. They had the HE-11s armed with three or four machine guns, but they decided you still needed escorting. Uh, and that dive bombers were an effective substitute for horizontal bombing. They did not go 180 degrees, dive bombing is the way ahead. Right. And the Junkers 87B was fielded in Spain and tried out there for seven months before the end of the war as well. Navigator got to fly in those. What did Germany really learn? I would say to you that what Germany learnt in these areas is summed up here. Bomber armament. Did they change bomber armament? They didn't. They had fast bombers with handheld machine guns, which of course is the Battle of Britain vision. That's what they kept. They didn't, they actually introduced a couple of extra machine gun positions, but they didn't change. They didn't go for powered turrets. They didn't go for armored turrets. They didn't go for, um, um, automatic weapons that were still, um, magazine clips. Armoring. Hmm. Britain looked at armor. The Germans didn't decide to introduce armor into the aircraft. Here's a 109E3. There's the cockpit. Reflect the gun sight. Hans Schmoller Hardy. And despite you talk about the 109 having a heavily framed cockpit you can't see out, it's not the case. This is a 109E3. Actually, it's quite lightly framed. They don't have rear-view mirrors, because they intended the pilots to actually look over the shoulders, which they thought was more important and to do so. There is no armour. No armour in that aircraft, and it was field-modified and introduced here later on, spoiling some of the view. So they didn't take armouring out of it, but they did introduce self-sealing fuel tanks into bombers, ahead of everybody else. And manpower. Well, just before we go there, tactics. Here we have what we all know is a finger four or a schwarm in German 
uh, parlance. Developed in 1937, because of shortage of ME-109s, they had to fly in pairs. They couldn't get three airborne at the same time, so they ended up flying in pairs, found it more effective to fly two aircraft. One, one attacks and the other defends, right? Then you automatically you put the twos together, fingers of the hand, four, you know, leader at the front, this is his wing mate, here's the guy there. Then you can split into two, if somebody attacks you, you can sandwich him. They found those, those by serendipity really, effective tactics, so they developed them. And they became the standard tactics, and they are flown to this day. They are flown in the Royal Air Force to this day, right? But they had them in October 1937. And they had manpower. Talk a bit about manpower. Start for 10, anybody know who this is? Mulders. Mulders. It is, it's Werner Mulders and uh, Walter Uzel. Uh, both Spanish veterans. He, of course, invented these tactics in Spain and went on to great fame and fortune afterwards before being killed. And uh, Walter Uzo um, was another legendary uh, fighter ace who was uh, a, a top scorer in Spain. Came back from Spain, two medals here, and the Spanish Civil War breast cross. So if you try and track somebody down from the Spanish Civil War, you just find pictures of them with that breast cross on. They learned quite a lot from it, but are those the right lessons, you might ask yourself? What did we learn? We learned about armour and weapons policy. We actually said, although the advantages of the amazing developments in bomber speed are beyond dispute, we cannot rely on our close defences to save us. So, although they saw fast aircraft in Spain, although we were developing fast bomber aircraft, we believed we needed to actually have guns as well. We began crash programmes to armour and aircraft in 1937. The 1936 aircraft to the 1936 bomber spec all had pilot armour already envisaged and all had power-operated turrets. People say the RAF learned nothing from the Spanish Civil War, right? We carried on strategic bombing. I suggest to you that we expected to fly in daylight, we expected to have to go fast to get there and to get back, and we expected to have to fight. And we expected fighters to actually catch up and you have to defend against them. Belt-fed, of course, unlike the, the handhelds. Why did we come to that view? I mean, it wasn't that we blithely ignored the views of these things. People actually thought they would have to fly in daylight, fight close formations, and do it. We looked at weapons. 303, 20mm, 30mm Spitfire fuselage. Uh, which one would you like to be on the end of? Um, not very good. We had, in the specs of 1935 and 1936, eight gunfighters. The um, Typhoon spec was a 12-gunfighter, I think. This is 1936-37. We expected to have massive armament. We expected to be able to shoot down a Heinkel 111. We needed quite a lot of firepower. Right? So we actually were in advance of other people in fighter armament. Because the Germans had 20mm cannon, which could do this to a... Uh, Lancaster, I guess, uh, that one, uh, or maybe even Manchester, um, I think. And although that was used in Spain, it's a different weapon from which we ended up with. Um, Dowding, in fighter command, actually wanted to step from 303s to 30 mil plus. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't want to mess around with 20 mils. He wanted to go from 303 to 30 or 40 millimeter guns in, can in cannon in fighters. He thought 20mm a waste of time, uh, but eventually it did come in because it proved to be effective.
So we already learned about armor, already learned about turrets, and we were having big gunfighters. Should we have changed anything therefore from Spain, fighter armament? I don't think so. AI knew that cannon was used in Spain. The Air Fighting Committee concluded the single-seat fighter is now invulnerable to 303 fire. They expected German fighters to have cannon, British aircraft to have 303s, and then stand off and shoot at the bomber with their cannon and not be able to fire back at him. Um, Ludlow Hewitt, who was chief before um, Bomber Harris, said, we can't accept this state of complete helplessness against a single-seat fighter as exemplified in Spain. He pressed for upgunning of bombers, more speed, ammo and armour, because that was all we could do. Right? All we could do in the timescales available. And all aircraft before the B-139 envisaged using 303 guns. It wasn't easy to introduce things like um, extra guns on the, on the uh, Hamden here. There were programmes for the Wellington underway at the start of the war to actually upgun them. Battles and Hamdens were difficult. The, the battle couldn't carry enough uh, bomb load if you put extra guns on it. And design for 20mm defensive turrets started in 1938. That was to defend against cannon-armed fighters. Right. Again, another lesson which clearly observed that you know, through Spain we're going to have to go for bigger guns to defend against these aircraft. That was stopped by Lord Beaverbrook in 1940 condemning us to five years of 303 design. Um, it was resurrected late on for the Windsor and the Lincoln. I don't know if anybody's actually interested in that period of aircraft or, or whatever. This um, here is actually Windsor, which had remote control barbettes and the inner nacelles with twin 20-millimeter cannon. And that was what they were developing in 1938. That was what we were trying to put on bombers. This is the... Uh, the Vickers Armstrong B1 of 39, the ideal bomber spec. Notice the turret, 4 times 20 millimeter upper and lower. 8 20 millimeter guns in that design. And that was going to be the RAF standard bomber from 1943 onwards. Um, one of the designs, there were five competing designs. They all had these, um, all had based on this, which had to be situated there because they weighed basically 4,000 pounds. And they accepted a reduction in bomb load from 13,000 to 4,000 pounds because of the importance of having 20 millimeter guns. And then in 1940, Lord Beaverbrook, when he took over the uh, Air Ministry for Production, um, cancelled them because he thought it was a, a dead end and that we could get through with three or threes. Um, not sure about that. 40 millimeter gun installation in the same barbette tried on the Wellington. Right? Dowding, was, Dowding wanted this evaluated and Bomber Command were very interested in doing it. So we actually looked at real armament. Who learnt the lessons of Spanish Civil War about bombers being intercepted by fast fighters? I've got a feeling that we actually were better than other people in this. Fighter armour. Dowding was unconvinced in June of 1938 that we needed armour in fighters. In November 1938, he changed his view. He decided you needed um, a layer of armour on top of the cowling, and then you needed bulletproof glass on here and pilot armour. They um, asked continually if armour was being used in Spain. They got the reports, and they knew it was being used in ground attack aircraft and on fighters, and that was one of the uh, prods behind actually employing it. So we did learn that lesson. By October 1939... All hurricanes fitted, 50% of all fighters, and they were fitting them at 20 a week. 
Bombs and bombing. Larger bombs were needed. The warfare committee said the 650-pound bomb was used. There was little detailed technical examination. If you haven't got somebody on the ground in Spain, you can't do that. By mid-1937, the Spanish evidence stated to the air staff they need a £1,000 weapon that could be carried in the Blenheim in the battle. Uh, the biggest weapon in 1937 was a £2,000 semi-armour piercing for use against the uh, warships, and a £1,000 bomb was approved in 1938 for anti-rail use. Escorts. Escorts. As you all know, we never had any escort fighters. Um, the Air Fighting Committee considered this a hardy annual. The circumstances of Spain were quite unusual. Dowding said that such conditions would never exist in a European war. Fighters with their firepower mainly aft could be used in the formation. You'll remember the Defiant. Sholto Douglas, who was there, cast at that stage, said the ME110, which of course had been developed for a long-range fighter requirement, is an unsuitable escort, it lacks enough rearward guns. Because fighters could easily be drawn off away from the bombers. What we need is a turret fighter with long endurance to carry out offensive patrols over enemy territory. They wanted a, a defiant type aircraft to go over the uh, Heligoland Bight and fight ME-109s using turrets at that stage. Our big bomber policy will allow us to operate in small formations of single aircraft, in which case escorts would be ex uneconomical and rob our tactics of flexibility. I suggested there was enough evidence from Spain that it would have modified that view. We did look at developing the F-937 with the Peregrine engines and Taurus, but it went by the wayside. The, um, the Defiant, of course, was regarded as the uh, most advanced aircraft coming into um, Fighter Command in 1939. Downing didn't like it at all, didn't want them. He said, I don't want to wake up one morning and find I've got 15 squadrons of Defiance. You know, and worse than that, I could wake up one morning and find you've given me 15 squadrons of aircraft with 20mm guns, which would be a complete waste of time. So actually a letter from Fighter Command saying that. The Army, we believe, were obsessed with a war in France. We forgot how to support the Army because we were looking at um, strategic bombing. Slesser, aircraft is not a substitute for uh, artillery. This is the planner, remember. There are more effective targets beyond the front. There's only special conditions needed. The results in Spain were usually disappointing compared with the losses sustained. Nevertheless, events in Spain raised a doubt about his view that the aircraft is not a battlefield weapon. Uh, the AOC of 22 Army Cooperation Command wrote on that letter, Were the results disappointing? I believe that anything within 100 miles of the front in Spain has to be camouflaged and dug in. Surely this is an effective use of resources. The Army prodded and prodded, and we got a specification for a two-seat uh, aircraft, 1,000-pound bomb load, four machine guns, supposed to be turret-armed uh, for direct support of the Army. That requirement eventually became the Blenheim Mark V. Uh, you might ponder whether that was an effective answer to what the Army really wanted to have. We're almost at the end then, gentlemen, and I've talked for long enough at uh, an hour and a quarter here. Conclusion. Well, I would conclude that in Spain, the Germans learned the effectiveness of tactics, the effectiveness of fighter technology. They put 19,000 people through, and they got high-quality personnel who learned in the war and became experienced. I think that probably outweighs a lot of the other things. They had people like uh, this, who's a, a chap called Werner Schaub, who flew as um, 
as a uh, an ME109 pilot and was known as Der Dicky, uh, the fat one in German. He ended the Second World War as an ME110, ME110s through the whole of World War II, flew for five years, 22 kills in an ME110, six in Spain. This chap is Otto Bertram. He um, was one of the leading aces in Spain. His two brothers were killed at the start of the war in the Battle of Britain, and so his mother exercised her right to withdraw him from combat under the ancient Prussian law of 1870. So he was actually, one of the leading aces was taken off. Having just been awarded the Knight's Cross, his mother made him stay at home for the duration. It's a very interesting thing if you've seen Saving Private Ryan. Um, but he was only one of 352 fighter pilots who went through. Of the 129 officers that went to Spain, fighter pilots, 38 were awarded the Knight's Cross for bravery, 17 were killed in Spain, 43 were killed in World War II, which means something like 50% of them actually survived World War II as a German fighter pilot, which takes some doing. Other people. Harlinghausen, who led the seaplane squadron, he uh, then instigated um, German uh, uh, tactics in the fleet that attacked PQ-17. He was responsible for that. and went on to be Lieutenant General in the Luftwaffe after the end of the Second World War. Adolf Galland went on to become General de Flieger, head of all fighters, till 1944. Uh, Rolf Pingle, another leading ace, he landed the first uh, Focke-Wulf 190 in, in uh, Britain when it was introduced, thereby giving all the secrets away. Not very popular with his colleagues from Spain. Um, this chap here, as a bomber pilot, flew 100 missions in Spain, 500 in the Second World War, 28 over London, uh, was awarded the Knight's Cross, the Oak Leaves and Diamonds, the Knight's Cross three times, and all his crew got the Knight's Cross. And he ended up flying ME-262s in 1945. Um, this chap here, Herbert uh, Ehlerfeld, 1937, Spain, 1945, 8th of May, Heinkel 162 Wing Commander, Lech, about to surrender to the Germans, uh, the German aircraft over, to the Allies. So he flew through the whole of the war, 123 kills, 1,100 operational missions, Spanish Civil War breast cross. So they had that core of people, but they of course ended up fighting at the front. A lot of them got killed, they lost the leaders, nobody can fly those sorts of numbers of missions. And so maybe in the end the lessons didn't come through to the highest command. These people tried to introduce them, but against the likes of Goering, possibly, mid-war, you couldn't do it. Do you think Britain could have done the same? We rapidly got rid of our um, antiquated tactics. After the Battle of Britain, introduced the Finger Four. People like Salem Land did that. And by the end of 40, going into 41, we were flying the same patterns. We had people like Screwball Burling. Um, these German fight races achieved kills in some areas. I think 132 was the most any of the Spanish War guys did. Mulder's 115. He shot down 26 aircraft in 28 flying days. So perhaps if he'd flown 1,100 sorties, um, rather than do uh, two tours, 400 flying hours, you might have found he'd had uh, over 100 kills. This chap, um, Lovell, flew more fighter tour tours than any other pilot and fighter command, did five operational tours, still only came to 520 missions. And Johnny Johnson, 38 aircraft in what I think was 370-ish sorties. Now imagine if he'd done uh, 370. 
We had the same quality of people. What they didn't have at the start of the war was experience. And that's what the Germans had the advantage of in Spain. So what did the RAF learn then, in conclusion? This is what people said at the start of this lecture about us. The RAF was the Air Force that was least capable of learning and adapting, an intellectually shallow service, a sort of gentleman's polo club. That is from a leading Luftwaffe historian. In fact, a very expert Luftwaffe historian. That's what he writes. What did Britain learn from the Spanish Civil War? That. And, you know, very annoying. Another historian wrote this. One would think the RAF to be the only air force on earth to make mistakes and the worst at procuring new equipment and preparing for strategic bombing and air defence. Each of those thoughts would be wrong. I suggest to you we tried very hard to learn the lessons. I think we need to remember this. Despite looking, despite finding out, unless you're directly combat involved, it's very difficult. It is only in war that men truly learn to fight. Napoleon. Yep. And I think, you know, we had a professional air force which could learn once they were engaged. It's very difficult to learn the lessons of the previous war, as we continually prove that Spain, I don't think, is an exception. I'll come again to that Goddard statement. A tendency to confuse beliefs with facts and where facts conflict with traditional thinking to reject them. And we come to the right action by a very hard route. And what I would say is, the RF tried very hard to learn the Spanish Civil War. They collected the information, they sifted it, they looked at the sources, they were up against the economy, political will, and intervention. But when it came to actually fighting, we had people capable, technology capable, an air industry capable of building world-beating aircraft, and eventually we got it right. So it's a shame we didn't learn from Spain. It may have cost us some uh, pain, but in the end, we know who won uh, in the Second World War, and we know the professionalism of the Air Force that took us through. So, gentlemen, I'll leave you with that. That's Spain and the Civil War, but I think you've heard enough, and I should call it a day right now. Well, thank you very much for that, Brian. That I'm sure there was a great deal there for all of us to think about. We have a bit of time left, not quite as much as I'd hoped, but we've got a bit of time to discuss and talk, um, ask questions and so forth. Uh, the floor is now open, if somebody would like to make a start. I've worn them down. No, over and back, thank you. You concluded by stressing the uh, amount of experience which the German contingent uh, entirely correct. There's always somebody who's, uh, who's been to the files and knows more than you. Uh, there are intelligence reports from Group Captain Buss, and he, he discussed um, 
amongst other things, formations and armour with those uh, with those airmen, and some of that actually went into the armour debates. And I have seen the file, um, refugee airmen, Spanish Republican refugee airmen, uh, possibility of joining the Air Force, something along that title. I do have the reference if, if you wanted, and it's quite thin. It was essentially blocked at the highest political level, and it was decided that their, um, their experience was um, not essential to the war effort, that um, there would be other sources of experience, and that um, what they gleaned um, was, well, not directly relevant, as I've tried to say. And this was very much this attitude that we had of the second-class war, um, actually looking at them, talking to them, and taking it, Men didn't want to hear it. The senior leadership did not want to hear it. And at that stage, of course, we were very close up against the elephant of World War II. I think it was very disappointing. There's only a couple of Republican airmen actually flew. You probably know that, sir, as well, do you? For the, um, there was a chap called uh, Comte de Homricourt, who was Belgian, and actually came through that system. And he actually flew for fighter command and I think had four kills round about the Battle of Britain, but was then killed. And there were a couple of others who flew, but they got through the net by subterfuge and through other nations. And I, I would agree that this was a, this was a genuine opportunity um, because they had some people who had learned very bitter lessons, and they had some Republican pilots, I think were in Poe, had something like 20 or 22 kills in that order and a lot of sorties. So again, it was another opportunity missed. Um, I think... At that stage, Spring 39, uh, it must have been very difficult to actually decide which strands to take forward, and uh, it really was a rush to war at that stage. But I would agree entirely with you, it, it was a loss. Um, Russia, of course, purged most of the airmen who came back from from Spain, were purged, and uh, although they fought in um, Manchuria using some of those tactics, by the time 1940 came, virtually all of the Spanish contingent had gone. So they really did start in 1941 from a from a blank board, um, although they had the structures, the ground attack structures. So I would agree. I, I can give you that file reference if you've not seen it, if you are going to go to the PRO, but there isn't a lot in it. Uh, I'd like to see what was said uh, behind the scenes there. Right. Uh, another one? Yes, Ken Fulton. Could you say at all what the sources of information were statements and quotations? Well... Virtually all my quotations are from files in the public record office. Um, I'm literally got, I, well, I, I tell a lie. I, I've read extensively, um, and I have, I, I could supply you with my book list if you like, um, on the whole period. But most of the quotations actually come from public record office files, which are open to us all. Um, quite a lot of them are air intelligence files. They were only opened in, I think, 1987, 1989. So a lot, of, a lot of the literature has been published before then, and therefore these orthodox statements. In a lot of um, aeronautical literature, gentlemen, I believe quite a few people repeat what somebody else says, and very often they don't go back to the original source. And when you do, you'd be surprised. Um, so I have all those file references, and uh, this actually comes from a paper I did for an MA. And they're in there. I'm going to lodge a copy in the library here through Frank, and, you know, you'd be willing to use those and view those files at your at your leisure. But they are uh, statements. I do have quite a lot of German literature from uh, from the period as well. Um, by spending a long time in the public record office. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and unfortunately that's the way. I mean, if you go Spanish Civil War, you'll get about 25 files. 
but you then actually have to physically just go through sections, look at the dates of file blocks and, and literally work through and see them, and often they're duplicated. There's been a lot of deliberate winnowing of files in there by air intelligence, and uh, and some things are not there. But all the Spanish Civil War reports, all the meetings of the committee, all the minutes, they're all there. But they were only opened in 1989. Mm. Okay. Any, anybody else? On that note, are there new files coming up being released? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I keep I keep living in hope um, about them, but I think most of them were covered under. Uh, I thought uh, the 40-year rule that most of them were. There's a 30 and 40-year-old block, um, so there's 79 and a 50-year-old block, which came out in 89. Um, but I don't think the classification was ever high enough for us to expect any more to come out. I think I think those that are are there. Um, if anyone knows Seb Cox from the uh, Air Historical Branch, he's an intelligence expert, head of the mm. RF Air Historical Branch. Yeah. He, um, I've asked him this question on several occasions, and he thinks basically I've mined the store. Um, such as it was. I didn't actually expect there to be a store when I started. Um, I just wanted to do some original resource, resource, uh, research and I was surprised at the amount of information there is. Okay. Yes, Harry. Um, Yes, well, one of the things I didn't bring out, of course, was air transport, the importance of that first uh, carrying of everybody across. Britain really didn't have any kind of an air transport. The Germans established two Junkers 52 per squadron on the strength, so that whenever you came to 1939-40, moving through France and Norway, each squadron could actually carry its own personal spares and troops, and therefore I moved very quickly. But we didn't go there. Um, because we were trying to build large aircraft uh, for bombing purposes, because that was the thrust rather than to do anything else. And unfortunately, it was a lesson that really wasn't learned until very much later uh, in the war. But in all of this, there's priorities. There's money, and um, it's the same all the world over. That was a lesson missed, and indeed, it really only the Germans learned it. Only the Germans learned that. They learned how to disperse aircraft to camouflage them, because all the airfields were just flat planes in Spain. Um, you know, so it's one of the things they were ahead of us in the uh, 1940s, certainly on. Perhaps I could ask one. Um, uh, you talked about bomber armament and how we tended to stick with the lighter machine guns. And uh, you even showed a picture of the, the Wellington with the, with the big cannon. Um, of course, there's another school of thought that says, well, um, these bombers were weighed down by all these 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 guns and particularly gun turrets mm -hmm. and um, we lost an awful lot of people in the bombing war 50, 50 plus thousand mm -hmm. wasn't it um, uh, with these big bombers mainly and yet by going to the high performance unarmed mosquito mm -hmm. we managed to do very well with those aircraft. We could deliver a lot of bombs. We could even go to Berlin twice in the night, I gather, with mosquitoes. Um, we only had two people in each. Um, was there any suggestion of the case for the unarmed bomber, the unarmed high-performance one? Was there any 
hint of a lesson in that direction from the Spanish Civil War or not? Um, I think most people know the sort of history of the mosquito, and it was reasonably frowned upon. Um, <coughs> Wilfred Freeman, who of course was in, uh, it was in procurement, was an advocate, and there is some discussion about the advantages of speed. But when the RAF were building the big bombers, they expected to actually have a fast aircraft. They, we weren't talking mosquito speed. The mosquito was the fastest aircraft in RAF service till about 1942 or 3, I think, mm. certainly. But they actually expected these big bombers to travel very fast, you know, 320 plus mile an hour. And they wanted to build them big and fast. And the engine argument, the, the bigger the engine, the, uh, the bigger the airframe you needed. Um, while you've got a big airframe, you might as well carry the bombs. Then if you're going to have to go in daylight, then you've got to defend. It became circular. So really, the bomber approach, the uh, fast, uh, high-speed bomber, required you to stand completely back from that and say, well, why don't we go for the um, the lesson of Spain, if you like, mm. and say that you oh, could yes, outrun the yes. fighters. But you just found it very hard to convince the senior military leadership that you would actually outrun the fighters. I don't believe people believed that Mosquito yeah, actually do I, it. I just wondered whether any there was any suggestion from the experience of the Spanish mm. Civil War that instead of going to heavily heavily defended bombers, there might be a good argument for going to for zero defended bombers that could really move fast in the sky and, um, you know, give fighters a good run. I, I suspect there probably wasn't. No, no, I don't, I've not found any direct evidence found to, yeah. to support that. I mean, again, I'd yeah. like to. But maybe in Wilfred Freeman's papers, I don't actually, mm. know, I don't actually know much about what his opinion was. I would think from what you've said that there wasn't any any evidence that mm. pointed that way from the from that civil war. You know, you had to do the calculations and take a chance on it, so to speak. I would have thought the mountain has been written about the mosquito, that if there was, somebody might have turned it up. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Any 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 more points or comments? Can I uh, say a word? On yes, that? of course. Yeah. Mr. Armstrong is speaking, yes. <laughs> on behalf of the impoverished uh, pensioners uh, of today and the reports that emanate from the continent with regard to the uh, enhanced benefits that uh, citizens uh, achieve there, um, could I relate it to the rewards? which were issued to the returning troops of the Congo region, uh, because, Fran, with respect, I thought maybe that may have passed a little unnoticed or, or was underfed by you. Um, would you just repeat again what these veterans of the Congo region received in gratitude from their government on return to the Parliament? <laughs> Spanish Civil War Breast Cross. Um, Spanish War campaign medals. Um, there's a military medal for Spain as well, and then and the, um, the typically the Spanish breast cross actually went from uh, plain brass right up to silver and gold with diamonds. Uh, personally presented to you by the Führer, uh, 18 people got that, but they got 1,200 Reichsmarks per month, which must have been a princely sum mm. at that stage for the nine months. Well, difficult to say, but I mean the. Uh, the kind of sports cars they were buying with their year's allowance um, were uh, 
the sort of XJ8, Jaguar XJ8 vintage. Yeah, I mean, really, that, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's convincing. There are very few uh, German um, first-person pilot narratives, but um, there is one called uh, Spitfire on My Tail by Ulrich Steinhilper. He was a communications officer in 1938 on a fighter squadron, and uh, they had the Spaniards on his squadron. They had the Spaniards, and there's pictures of the, uh, of the station, and there's these very nice sports cars. And he says, you know, oh, you'll notice the Spaniards, the Spaniards sports cars. And they weren't happy about it at all. The ordinary man in the ground. Interestingly enough, he relates how um, Galland uh, poo-pooed any use of radio for inter-air communication. We didn't have it in Spain. We don't need it in Spain. We don't need it now. Because he was flying ground attack. He wasn't flying inter-air. So. I see. Yes, interesting. Well, thank you very much for that raising that point. Very, very relevant one. Lots any, any more before we, we finish up? I think no, perhaps we have come to the end. Um, so it remains to me to thank you, Brian, most sincerely for this uh, very illuminating, uh, fascinating evening. Um, We've, I'm sure we've all learned a great deal. I go home with my mind full of all these quotes from various people, and um, I shall try and get it in perspective a bit better by studying your paper in due course, which, as you have said, will be provided for the library shelf. Um, we try to put what we can of each lecture, whether in fully written up form or in note form on the uh, library shelves here and, and it's properly catalogued into the library system so people can consult it later. And I think the only remaining thing for me to do, thank you for this most interesting evening and uh, we do like to present our lecturers with a small memento of the, of the occasion. So as we offer our thanks to you in the normal way, I'll ask you to accept from the historical group of the Society this small gift. Thank you very much. Thank you.